Pacifica Radio in San Francisco, this is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, straight-up racism in Georgia at the Ahmed Arbery murder trial. Also, killing John Lewis again. Dems put voting rights on the back burner. Greg Palast will have something to say about that. All this coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. We broadcast every weekday from the San Francisco Bay Area over the Pacifica Radio Network. That's KPFA in the Bay. And we are happy to have you along. We're also delighted to be joined again by Greg Pallast, uh, our warrior, our vote warrior, who's out there battling for your vote and mine. We've been doing election protection programming for many years now. And this battle... Uh, continues and the today greg palast the disinformation flows and the corporate networks play their key role in making sure we all remain stupid there's now the celebration of this guy raffensburg perjure who uh, supposedly took on trump single-handed is he our hero raffensperger yes well, if you listen to Anderson Cooper, 60 Minutes, and the rest, Brad Raffin's perjur, and by the way, his name really is Perjur. He is the Persian general of Georgia. And uh, I have, as you know, for those who have been following you and me, the writings of Greg Palast investigations, I've investigated like the most racist, the most vicious secretaries of state. These are the people in charge of voting beginning with Katherine Harris back in 2000, eliminating black voters, Ken Blackwell in Ohio, Chris Kobach out of Kansas. But I have to say, Brian Kemp of Georgia, but the worst. To me, the, the one who's in practice been the most vicious in attacking the rights of people of color to vote and young people, Asian Americans, especially black voters, is Brad Raffensperger, Secretary of State of Georgia. And yet... He's been played as a hero in the national press. Why? Because, yes, it's absolutely true. He did refuse Trump's demand. We have the telephone recordings. Trump's demand that he find 12,000 votes in Georgia to uh, put Trump back over the top. Trump lost Georgia by just under 12,000 votes, so he called Raffensperger 29 times, by the way, to tell him you got to find 12,000 votes. Now, Raffensperger, who knew that that this information would get out, and there is a federal prosecutor in Atlanta who's looking into this, he's willing to do an awful lot for Trump. Bend the election. Steal the election for Brian Kemp, the guy who put him there, the Republican governor, who was his predecessor secretary of state and, and uh, re, uh, appointed Raffens Perger to replace him. And he was willing to bend, just do vicious stuff in Georgia. But he wasn't willing to go to jail for Donald Trump. And supposedly that's supposed to make him a grand hero. But I have to tell you, I've sued with, and the ACLU sued him, the, the NAACP has sued him. I have sued him successfully in federal court over his concealing 
his sneaky ways of removing black voters from voter rolls and, and other things. And Anderson Cooper did nothing but, uh, so this guy was just on this week on Anderson Cooper. He's got a new book out that, that the, you know, the liberal media is, um, lauding called Integrity Counts. But here's the line he's selling, Dennis, and this is what's so dangerous. The line he is selling is that, yeah, Trump is lying and, and ridiculous when he says that the election was stolen in Georgia from him. And so was Stacey Abrams. He's always saying the two things together. Trump is lying. Stacey Abrams is lying. Stacey Abrams ran for governor in 2018 and cited my work in particular in saying the election was stolen from me. We found that as the palace investigative team, after lawsuits got the list or were able to obtain the list of people removed from the voter rolls of Georgia, half a million voters were knocked out before the um, governor's race in 2018, half a million. And we found out that 364,134 of those voters, we have it exact, were wrongly removed from the voter rolls, saying that they were illegal voters, mostly that they had moved out of Georgia. They hadn't moved anywhere. Their only crime was voting while black or young or Muslim uh, and, and Asian Americans, lots of Asian Americans. So um, these were illegal voters. Because a third of a million voters were illegally removed, Stacey Abrams lost the governorship by just you know 50,000 votes. That was just one of many tricks uh, played by the office of Secretary of State, first Brian Kemp and then his successor, Rathens Perger. And you have to understand, I mean, um, with the NAACP, ACLU, Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Push, um, I, prov- I was in a federal lawsuit where I was the expert witness, and a federal judge was just stunned at um, Raffens Perger's acts. In fact, actually, Raffens Perger lost the suit uh, that we brought and had to pay me, uh, my lawyers. Um, this is a serious, serious guy standing in the voting booth door and the idea that 60 minutes just because he stood up against see they hate trump they hate trump the mainstream media but they also hate progressives who point out that american democracy is anything but let me just give you one example um you know the the same media said oh it's terrible in georgia if you tried it's a felony crime to give someone a glass uh, you know, a bottle of water or a slice of pizza if they're waiting five hours in line to vote. Well, that was Raffensperger who said you go to prison if you give someone a bottle of water if they're standing in the Georgia sun for five hours. So why are they standing in the Georgia sun for five hours, Mr. Raffensperger? I'll tell you why. Like in Cobb County, there were 11 early voting stations in Cobb County. Um, when Trump lost Cobb County, which used to be Newt Gingrich's district, so that was a shock to the GOP. They then we had the runoff for the Democrats, for the you know, between the Democrats and Republicans for the US Senate. John Ossoff, Reverend Warnock ran uh, again in a runoff against the Republican candidates for Senate. The whole US Senate was on the line. They closed six of the eleven early voting stations, Dennis. All six of those were the voting stations in African-American precincts, and the five remaining were all the white precincts. That was under Raffensperger, the great hero. Now, just and the great hero who now 
has a best-selling book, the, the same hero, by the way, who opposes all federal uh, reform in terms of uh, voter, uh, you know, making voter rights and not making it impossible to vote if you're black. He, he is clearly an opponent of all federal legislation. So he's got a best-selling book. He's all over the networks. And he's an extreme right winger who really believes in this regiment of limiting people's uh, people of color, yeah. poor people, students' right to vote. Right. This is well, what here's we got a going very, on here. Yeah. Here's a very simple question, Mr. Cooper. Anderson Cooper, by the way, I'm going to be blunt about it. He's the laziest. If you, well, I don't want to call him a journalist, but if you want to, as opposed, he's just a TV personality, you know, uh, kind of Ken doll. Um, for CNN. But if you consider him a journalist, he would have to be the laziest journalist alive. It doesn't take much to Google Raffensperger and find out what the NAACP says about him, what the ACLU says about him, and what the investigation, investigative reports I've done have said about it, and federal judges have said about this guy. So the, all he had to do was say, look, you know, on one hand, we have uh, SB 202, the Georgia law, that virtually makes voting while black illegally. It is the worst vote suppression law I've seen in my 20 years of covering this stuff. Raffensperger pushed that law like crazy. Okay, he pushed those those provisions like crazy, including we, if you remember, uh, you had on even the sound from uh, uh, when I uh, approached a woman who who personally challenged the right of 32,000 voters to have their ballots counted in Georgia. Altogether, 364,000 voters are facing the challenge to their ballots. That is only and uniquely created by SB 202, a Raffensperger bill. And this is the guy that they're lauding as having integrity. And, you know, again, their idea of integrity is, oh, he served to Trump. But remember, they did try to steal the state for Trump. Let's let's not let's not sugarcoat this thing, uh, Dennis. Uh, they did try to sugarcoat it. If you go back to GregPalace.com and and the prior flashpoints, um, you know the mass purges, the closing of the voter stations, um, personal challenges to voters. Uh, they have something in Georgia which which Raffensperger promotes called uh, Exact Match. So if your name is Garcia Marquez and you have a hyphen and an accent and then maybe an umlaut in there on your name and, and that's how you registered, but it's not on your driver's license with those marks, you don't get to vote. You're clearly a fraudulent voter. And you know what really made me laugh and cry at the same time on Anderson Cooper? He said, you know that... Um, Donald Trump said that, uh, that there were thousands of people who voted in Georgia who, um, weren't properly registered. Now you have to understand, where did Donald Trump get this crazy idea? Well, how about, um, just before the primaries? That was a statement made by Raffensperger to the press. Thousands of illegal voters, and he was going to remove them. It was Raffensperger that told Trump that there were thousands of illegal voters. And when Trump reminded him of what he said, he said, oh, well, that's not true. (laughs) So it was Raffensperger that started this whole con that black voters are voting twice. They're voting illegally. They're voting from out of state. 
And they, you know, this is the guy, by the way, Raffensperger. And again, the, the national media didn't cover any of this, who basically said, if you want to register to vote in Georgia, you also have to have a car registered in Georgia. I kid you not. No car, no vote. He really tried to implement that days before, days before the national election. And, it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing. We're speaking with Greg Palace, gregpalace.com. We're talking with this guy, Raffensperger, who, you know, everybody knows was the guy that got the call from Trump and he is supposed to find the, the votes. Uh, from that act alone, he has become sort of a national hero. He's got a new bestseller. He's all over the networks getting softball questions. They, re- they don't have a clue. Uh, who this guy is, or maybe they do and they support his his sort of covert perspective. Anyway, Greg, I think we need to spend some time yes. talking about uh, fighting for the vote, where what that looks like now. Uh, Raffensperger and all the other right-wingers in, on both sides of the aisle have not uh, shown a great deal of concern for getting profound uh, voting reform in and defending the yes. vote. Where do you see us now well this week was a great tragedy for american democracy with the defeat with the filibuster defeating the john lewis voting rights advancement act now there's some confusion just to straighten this out which (laughs) how about that different for media actually explaining the facts there are two bills out there there's a for the people act which frankly didn't do very much for voting it was more symbolic, uh, minor procedural stuff. For the People Act went down. But this is very serious. The John Lewis Voting Rights Act would restore much of the Voting Rights Act Section 5 that was cut out by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2013. This would be a revolution in restoring voting rights as we had it years ago. Um, It says that you have to have certain states like Georgia, would have to pre-clear any changes in their procedures. Now, what does that term pre-clear, pre-clearance means? It's a fancy term saying if you're going to jerk around with the voting process, you have to notify the U.S. Justice Department, and you have to make it public, which means you're notifying the NAACP, you're notifying Greg Palace, you're notifying the ACLU, and you're notifying Dennis Bernstein, because they have to make these changes public before they pull them off, and get approval from the U.S. Justice Department, which has to certify that nothing here is prejudicial against any minority, racial or gender-wise. So, for example, if you're going to close six of 11 voting stations and all six are in black areas, that could not have happened under the old Voting Rights Act or under the John Lewis Act. They would have had to pre-clear it, and there's no way on this planet that anyone would say closing the black stations and leaving open the white ones is anything but racism. So that would be stopped by this law. So it's a very, very vital law. Right now, yes, you could stop things like closing six black voting stations and keeping over the five white ones. But you would actually, now the Justice Department, to pull that off, would actually have to file a suit in federal court. And in most cases, there just is no time to stop the steal before the election. They, they close those voting stations two weeks before the election for the runoff for the U.S. Senate, 
there would have been no time to stop that game in a federal court. So preclearance is vital. They can't do it until they get approval first. And it went down. Why did it go down? Because even though 51, the, the law, the John Lewis Act, won by 51 to 49, um, old man filibuster raised its head. That is, the Republicans uh, said that they would talk this bill to death, even though the majority of senators voted for it. They would not, they, the, the debate would go on forever, a filibuster, and therefore no business would be conducted in the Senate. So the bill had to be dropped. And of course, you've got people like uh, Murkowski, um, Manchin, Cinema, these three senators who said, oh, we're for this bill restoring basic, simple bill to restore democracy. But we're not going to actually, while we're going to technically vote for it, we're not going to close off, we're not going to end the filibuster. So it's a phony, because if you're not voting to end the filibuster, you're not voting for the bill. It's that simple. And they could have made a carve out. You don't have to end the whole filibuster system. By the way, the United, the House of Representatives doesn't have a filibuster and somehow the Capitol building still has a dome on it. The world has not come to an end because it's not at the House of Representatives. In most of American history, we haven't had filibuster. And in fact, Dennis, until Newt Gingrich came in, the filibuster was never ever used for anything but stopping the expansion and the protection of black voters in America. And it was also used at the beginning of the century to stop uh, an anti-lynching law. So that's the only time the filibuster had been used until recent years was simply to block black voters and and to stop and to um, permit, literally permit lynching in America. Uh, So they, you know, so, and, and here's the other problem on the filibuster side is, is a guy named Joe Biden. And well, I want this to quote is a big problem here. <laughs> with well, he is, pre- you know, he's president, you know, take it or leave it. Uh, so our president, he was asked on CNN, well, what, what about ending the filibuster for to protect voting rights? Because I will say that Manchin had been open, he said, on the John Lewis bill, because it's it would have a big impact, but it's not really that controversial. Um, Manchin actually said he would consider cutting out the filibuster for this one bill. But Biden says, and I want to quote it because I don't want to get it wrong, quote, here's the deal. You know, he always says, here's the deal. If, in fact, I get myself into, at this moment, the debate on the filibuster on uh, voting rights, I lose at least three votes right now to get what I have to get done on the economic side of the equation. In other words, I'm not going to protect voting rights if it's going to jeopardize my attempt to get the infrastructure bill through. It's that simple. He's throwing voting rights under the bus. It's a a matter of priorities. He could basically has a choice. I can pass voting rights or I can pass infrastructure. And... um, to kind of paraphrase Ben Franklin, those who choose infrastructure over voting rights deserve neither. And neither is what he might end up getting. This certainly- and, and I'm going to tell you something else, Joe. <laughs> President Joe, may I make a suggestion? I usually don't give political advice, but I will say this. If they lose, if the Democrats lose one senator 
or four Congress people next year, which is a real possibility unless this this voting rights bill is passed. Because Georgia, remember, since Warnock is going to have to run for re-election next year because he only had a short term, Senator Warnock. If Senator Warnock does not get re-elected, the Republicans take control of the Senate. And under the new Georgia rules, he's going to be climbing up a greasy pole. It's going to be very hard because Georgia does not trust the voters to pick their own senator. And if they're not going to get help from the U.S. Justice Department, if they're not going to stop the new rules of SB 202 and its tracks, they lose the Senate and certainly they will lose the, uh, the, the House as well. Now, I would note that, you know, it's, it's not a perfect Bill the Lewis bill. Here, this, it only, it doesn't affect every state, oddly. It only applies to Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, Texas, and Virginia. That's really a rogues gallery of, of vote suppressors. But we have tremendous problems in Ohio, Wisconsin, um, Arizona, Nevada. These states need need to be reviewed they can't be messing around with the voting laws but i'll i'll take the john the john lewis bill as it's written in terms of protecting voters but biden clearly does not want to put any capital behind it any political capital no and it, it really does not look good for voting in america because all these laws all these local laws all these state laws as you say are in place now and it's going to be a hell uh to try and vote and to determine you know who who knows what's going to happen in terms of when they start to enforce these laws and what what kinds of disruptions and then that of course brings out the extreme right we don't even know the role that the extreme right is planning to play they're not retreating right greg am i wrong the extreme right is now uh, heavily ingrained if they can sustain a coup uh, and continue on to get elected, right? How many were reelected? Well, how many of the coup planners were reelected on this round? Well, that's one of the one of the issues we do have to confront is that we have not yet, um, you know, we once again. Uh, and in fact, by the way, I should note that you know everyone's talking about the McAuliffe loss in in Virginia. Notice that Virginia is on this list of states with a proven record of vote suppression. And I have to tell you that Virginia, even though you've had, uh, you had a one-vote majority in the state legislature for the Democrats and Democratic governor, it's been a, a very pl- difficult place to vote if you are a person of color outside of the Fairfax County, which is kind of a Washington, D.C. suburb. It's, it's pretty gnarly there. It is, it is as difficult for a person of color to vote in Virginia as it is in Louisiana. Uh, and that's one of the issues I do know, um, that they, that they removed a hundred thousand people from the voter rolls wrongly using the purge system. If you remember interstate cross check, Virginia was part of that and they're part of its successor called Eric. So Virginia's bad news and that was not discussed at all. In this close defeat of um, Terry McAuliffe. Now, there are other reasons why Terry McAuliffe would lose. He's not exactly beloved in Virginia. He's, you know, old line Clintonite 
Democrat, very unexciting to most voters, not particularly loved. He just, you know, he's close to the Democratic funders, and that's how he got the nomination. So you could say it wasn't an exciting candidate, a very good one, and that's true. But, you know, um, he still had to uh, jump through the hoops of vote suppression in Virginia, and none of that has been discussed when discussing the reasons for the Democrats' loss. Well, uh, that's a fact, uh, but the, the, the wild card still is uh, the potential for violence, and it hovers everywhere. Uh, and we that's see, correct. you know, it's just, it's just endless, uh, at school board meetings that, you know, where, how this is, is unfolding, Greg, this is a lot more complicated than it just being stopped at the, uh, uh, before you can, uh, vote or pull the, the lever there or send in the vote. I mean, so, uh, and this is, of course, some of the great work that you and and um, yeah. Zach, Zach has been doing. Uh, Zach Roberts covering, you know, that the the trial is ongoing now, and the white supremacists are are, are defending themselves. And as you well, know, let, in Washington, the judges are are uh, being, shall we say, going light, a slap on the wrist. Uh, it doesn't that's look the US like Justice a, Department. That, that is the Biden. Now, let, let me be very clear. It is very satisfying to know that that the uh, that the ultra right, that the uh, the guys who created the mayhem and the death and the killings and the beatings of school teacher Dondre Harris and others in Virginia, in Charlottesville. It's uh, satisfying that they're on trial. But I want people to understand it's not a criminal trial. The state did not charge these guys, except for the one guy who, who ran over and killed a counter-protester, an anti-fascist counter-protester. Um, there's been very few indictments. They, uh, and uh, this is a civil case brought by the victims of the violence. So they had to bring their own charges. This should be done by the Justice Department. We shouldn't have to rely on private lawyers. When you get beaten with a stick nearly to death and metal poles like DeAndre Harris, you should be getting, it should be the police protecting you. You shouldn't have to go hire a lawyer. It should be as simple as those guys beat me up, put him in prison. That's what's missing here. We didn't have that. And again, in Washington, D.C., the big trials in Washington are not criminal trials where uh, the insurrection is the terrorists uh, who took over the Capitol, you know, an attempted coup d'etat. It's very little is being done on the criminal side by the U.S. Justice Department or the FBI. But rather, these are uh, civil suit was brought by some of the police who were harmed and some of the victims, but especially some members of the police forces, you know, and, and the insurrection, a policeman had his skull crushed and was killed. Uh, you've had uh, others permanently injured and through PTSD, you've had several commit suicide. Um, you know, we've had some questionable cops there. That doesn't help. But the, the real the real issue is where is the Justice Department? As you well know, and I complained before, FBI manual. And the D.C. police manual were violated in allowing those who took over the Capitol to leave the Capitol. When someone invades your home, you don't give them a police escort out. You arrest them. They should have everyone been arrested, everyone booked, and everyone had their cell phone taken. This is normal police procedure. It's normal FBI procedure. 
in a crime scene, especially a homicide scene, you don't let people leave and then say, oh, we're looking for them. Why are you looking for them? You had them in your hand. And so I'm very concerned about the very special, you know, kid glove treatment of insurrectionists versus the type of treatment I saw for, you know, uh, whether it's New York, San Francisco. I remember in New York when people were protesting on the highway, they bottled them up. Every single person was recorded and booked. Uh, they didn't just let people go and say, get off the highway. Before you got off the highway in your civil disobedience, you got right. And let me let me tell you something, Greg. If you're, at Occupy, if you're at Occupy Wall Street uh, and you're facing the cops there, you're really feeling the pain. But listen, we just have a couple of minutes left. Yes. I want to circle back to Raffin's perjure. He is mm-hmm. running now. He has already been effective in, uh, in my opinion, uh, preventing uh, Stacey Abrams from becoming a governor. He is running again. He's going to play a key role in the ongoing expanding suppression of vote. He's not going to be a friend, is he, to the to the voter? No, and it's a, again, it's a very dangerous line. The the media has been so intent on saying that Trump was wrong to say that the election was stolen, and yes, that's a lie. But that doesn't. But then the other side of the coin. So Raffensperger and the Republicans and Mitch McConnell are saying that's correct. Trump was wrong when he said the election was stolen from him, and Stacey Abrams and the ACLU and the NAACP and, uh, are, are wrong when they say on the other side, they make this equivalence. Like, oh, Trump's crazy and wrong about stealing elections, and so are the people who actually, we can give, I can literally give you the names and addresses of the voters by the hundreds of thousands. It's not a, we didn't even do a statistical sampling. We had the nation's top experts go name by name through the list with the most, with powerful computer programs, went to federal court and proved that people were wrongly blocked from voting. And every ugly trick in the book are used to stop people from voting. The endless long lines, why? Because they closed those voting stations in black precincts. Um, and they, and now they've made it so that if you try to drop off your ballot, they literally close the drop boxes. What's the point after work hours? Well, that's the whole point of a drop box. So after work, you can drop off your, your, your ballot. The games that are being played, and again, they are saying, well, Stacey Abrams and the progressives are wrong to say that there is vote suppression in America. Really? Really? All right. Well, we're going to really have to leave it there for now. Greg Palast, gregpalast.com. As always, we appreciate the incredible work uh, on the voter protection front, the election protection. Uh, we continue our ongoing election crimes bulletin, many crimes to be investigated. Uh, uh, Greg, please uh, stay safe. Come back soon. There's a lot of work to do. Unfortunately, there is. <laughs> Speak to you later, Thank you. Thank you. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're going to sort of keep it in uh, uh, Georgia, and we're going to take a look at that uh, trial. You heard about uh, the trial, the the almost all-white jury. Uh, Sounds old to me. We'll be back. Stay tuned.
listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We broadcast every weekday from the San Francisco Bay Area over the Pacifica Radio Network. We are happy to have you along. We turn our attention uh, back to Georgia and the uh, trial uh, into the those alleged to have murdered uh, but Orbury in a brutal sort of street side execution. Uh, the trial is in session now i believe it's the second day and uh joining us uh to talk about our two people who've been involved we're going to start with reverend john davis perry the second he is the president i believe still of the brunswick chapter of the georgia naacp uh reverend perry welcome to flashpoints i understand you were out protesting uh the jury selection process could you tell us why well, first of all, let me say thank you so much for having me on your show today. Um, and thank you for the work that you do. It's so so much needed. Um, I am currently no longer the acting president of the NAACP. I stepped down last year in order to run for mayor. We fell a little short, um, so I didn't advance to the runoff. But I understand how important it is to yet be active in the process of seeking justice in the Ahmaud Arbery case. Um, and as you stated, um, we were out with the family on today, um, just trying to support them in the process of pursuing justice. Um, and we are doing so in order to make sure that they understand that that family is not standing alone, that as a community, we are standing with them and making sure that justice is served in this heinous crime that was enacted against their son. Now, uh, the your thoughts on jury selection, it, you got the judge saying on the one hand it, it seemed to be racist, but the racism doesn't get in the way because they had other good reasons for excusing all those black people? Yeah, I, you know, as a community, we've been standing together and we've been real hopeful that we could receive a fair trial. Um, so to get to the point of the jury selection and see that the jury selection excluded black and brown participants, it was very disheartening. Um, there were a lot of people hurt by um, the jury that was selected. Um, and one of the things that has happened, though, it has exposed more people in our justice system. Um, we have a justice system that says that all of us have a right to serve um, and be a part of making sure that justice um, is rendered to, to any person that goes through the justice system. But time and time again, we keep seeing that a jury is, is selected that excludes the black, black and brown community. And so I think one of the things that I see as a partial victory is that it's being exposed um, in this particular case, I believe that I saw. I believe it was the aunt of Akbar uh, Arbery who interviewed on camera today, and one of the networks said that um, she has some hope that there could be justice. But when she was asked about being afraid about threats. She said that even today she's still afraid. She's afraid for the family. Uh, and um, I, I'm thinking 
you know, about the three people who are on trial, one of them is a former investigator for a local district attorney, a former long-time investigator for a local district attorney. This this accused murderer could... could, um, could could we expect there to be some hanky-panky somewhere along the line? Are you concerned uh, that it's taken so long because of that kind of connection? Well, absolutely. From day one, we had major concerns over the fact that there were ties and connections. And we saw that as a reason that there was no arrest made from the very, very beginning. And so we've been harrowing and crying out about this circle of privilege that we have here in the South. Uh, we've seen it time and time again where there's a connection that allows certain people to have a privilege because they're tied to people of power. And that's what we saw in this particular case. And of course, there are those that are raising the question that if this speaks to the character of the man, then how much underhanded stuff did he do while he was serving as an investigator? And so there are a lot of questions that are being raised holistically. Um, but we're glad that we've gotten to the point of seeing the tape that shows just what they did so that we can come to this point of the process of justice. Do you think it could be dangerous to be a black juror on that particular jury, That's uh, that uh, mostly white jury? It would seem to me that that could be a dangerous place to be. Well, I think not only is it dangerous for black jurors, but it's dangerous for all jurors. Um, there are people who have an agenda. There are people that are in support of those that have been accused of, of this particular crime that we're hoping to see them convicted of. And there are people that are concerned, you know, how will this affect me? How will this affect our, our family? But we know all well as the black community that if you're going to see any meaningful change, you've got to be willing to put skin in the game. Um, it costs a lot of people their lives. It costs a lot of people um, blood, pain, and suffering for us to get this far. Um, in order to see the changes that we still need to see, it's going to cost something. And so we're hoping that the jurors that are there, that they have enough integrity um, to push through this process and to speak truthfully as it relates to what the facts regarding this case. Uh, thank you, uh, Reverend Davis, for joining us. We appreciate it. We hope you'll come back and uh, keep us posted. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate well, it. Well, thank you for having me. And again, thank you for all that you do. Thank you so much. And you are listening to Flashpoints. We're going to continue talking about this with a local uh, activist who's been on this from the get-go, Monica Johnson. Uh, she's uh, an, act- an activist, a human rights activist and an organizer. She's been tracking this trial from the beginning. Uh, it is good to uh, welcome you back, Monica Johnson. Welcome back to Flashpoints. Thanks so much for having me, Dennis. It's been a while. Well... It's good to have you with us. Uh, let me get your take on the jury, your thoughts. Yeah, um, I am not particularly surprised um, by this result um, because if it went so far, I think, with this um, situation and it was so deep with the the um, prosecutor having been arrested uh, 
Miss uh, Johnson, Jackie Johnson, uh, for misconduct, which prevented, uh, like you mentioned, the the investigation going ahead in the beginning. Uh, I don't think that goes away with just the arrest of one person, especially since, you know, she got to be out on bail and all those things. Um, and so there's a long history of across Georgia and in South Georgia of the entire system being really, um, you know, slated for to keep white power, um, to keep white power in place. So I'm uh, not really surprised by it, but it does seem particularly egregious and it undercut, um, you know, how thick a lot of the laws um, and ways of, of doing things um, are in the, under the system for the judge to recognize that um, they did use questions like, do you find the Confederate flag um, offensive to, to weed out people? That shouldn't be allowed. That should be uh, something that, that overturns overturns that jury selection, but it didn't. So, so you, if it's okay to like the Confederate f- flag, that's uh, a question for being on the jury. Let me ask you a question: um, how h- how does white power? Uh, flex its muscle in this context of this kind of trial? Should the family be afraid? Should the jury be afraid? What are your thoughts on this? I think uh, a lot of it will remain to be seen. I think actually that the the McMichaels of the world should really be afraid of the righteous anger of the black community because that's what I've seen the most uh, outpouring of, of people traveling all across from the state and the country to go down for the trial uh, and to support and to keep this movement going. Um, I think that, you know, we see it even when it isn't just the good old boys um, in South Georgia up here in Atlanta where I live. Uh, you know, the, the, the DA has declined to prosecute several killer cops in a row. Um, and and, uh, you know, developers are allowed to um, push black people out of any affordable housing. So I think that um, this this uh, is, is very deep in the fabric of how our, uh, how our country is operating. But I also think that, uh, you know, the movement and the, the consciousness of, of people who want to see the end of racism of black and oppressed people in this country is also increasing. And... Um you say that have you been in uh in the trial so far have you I visited haven't had the a trial? Chance to go. I, didn't go, I haven't gone now I've just been up in Atlanta so well is it it is it is packed there are there uh people from both sides uh is there a sort of are are there protests going out uh going on in front one way or the other uh all of the protests that I have seen have been um asking for the prosecution of the McMichaels, although uh, I would not be surprised to see that the various white supremacist networks in Georgia um, are, you know, kind of, might be using this as um, as kind of a rallying point as something uh, to, to organize their, um, you know, their ilk around as well. But I have not seen them come to uh, the, you know, the courthouse and things for that reason. I see. And what, and what is the, what is the heart of the matter here for you? What, um, 
do you find most troubling about this whole situation? Uh, and, uh, you know, w what does it indicate, you know, uh, in terms of the problems that still remain in terms of racism uh, in the criminal justice system? Some of my friends refer to it as the criminal injustice system and their attorneys. Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, you know, the fact that this the the um, citizens' arrest law that had explicit roots in slavery remained on the books for so long um, is, you know, a, a manifestation of white supremacy. Uh, the fact that you know these men were emboldened enough uh, to to chase someone around in broad daylight and kill them um, shows that, like, the work of Deputize, deputizing white uh, people to be white supremacists to do the work of uh, killing and uh, maiming and uh, terrifying black people um, after all this time is still um, is still uh, pertinent. I think that um, the fact that you know it was known that these people are connected to the criminal justice system. Uh, we we know that it wasn't the first time that they had used a racial slur. It wasn't the first time, uh, you know, they had sh probably shown ra racial animus. But that's fine, you know. That's somewhere something that can allow uh, people to have long illustrious careers. But you know, the, on the flip side, people who um, use their their power to try and help oppressed communities or to speak um, in favor of. Um, you know, struggles like the Palestinian struggle or um, if you can be painted as someone who is a proponent of critical race theory or something like that, any stand-in for uh, racial justice, then it's much more likely that you use your, lose your job than um, various racist white people um, over, you know, over, over time uh, in, this, in this city and in this country. Yeah, it is sort of interesting in a way and sort of when you sort of zoom out uh, for the larger picture that you see, you know, the, the so-called teaching of critical race theory shows up in the Virginia election. We hear a lot about it being, you know, that there was a, the education was the big issue, but the the issue was trying to cancel a African-American woman who got a Nobel Prize for writing about the devastating nature of slavery. Right. Um, it all sort of comes around and goes around, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, across the country in Wisconsin, we have, you know, another deputized agent of white supremacy, Kyle Rittenhouse, who, you know, straight up killed two people with a rifle and uh, the judge there doesn't allow uh, the the murdered people to be called victims. They said that it, it, it can you know put a put a negative spin on things, and they can be called like rioters or or um, you know vandals or whatever, but not victims. So we see that up in Wisconsin, which is not the South, you know, we have the um, specific history in the South, but. It's, uh, you know, it explains or it explains the show as an example that um, this happens all across the country because it doesn't matter what part of the country you're in. You're going to find someone uh, defending white supremacists, maintaining the status quo 
you know, in the criminal and justice system, if I, if I take that uh, with me. And, um, you know, there isn't necessarily recourse until it's one or two of these um, of these cases. So I think it's probably pretty likely, I feel like, hopefully, that um, the McMichaels will end up guilty because this has been such a, um, a, a highly publicized case. Um, and I don't think they want to see the protest. But uh, it's possible, and that, and that jury selection certainly doesn't... Um, you know, make, it, make us, give us a lot of faith in the process. Wow. Well, listen, uh, I really do appreciate uh, Monica Johnson, you taking the time out to talk with us uh, and give us a perspective. We're going to watch it very closely. Something comes up uh, that you and I, I can, I always have to remember that because one of these uh, accused murderers was a long-time investigator for the DA, I wonder how many people he sort of legally, you know, behind the badge, uh, helped to frame and put in jail uh, and scratch that surface. I wonder if anybody ever will. But I'm going to leave it there for now. But again, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to be with us on Flashpoints. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good one. All right. Be safe. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're not going to take a musical break because we're running late on time, but we are going to welcome uh, a local activist, I should say, uh, working up north of uh, San Francisco, for those of you living in other parts of the country listening. Uh, we're uh, joined by Luis Bravo. He is with Comité Vida. Uh, and uh, Luis, welcome to Flashpoints. This is your first time visit. Uh, tell us, yep. you've got some uh, activities planned for the weekend. Could you tell us, uh, lay that out, w- what's going on and what's the plan? Yes, uh, <clears throat> thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be be here with you and your audience. Uh, my name is Luis Bravo. I'm representing Comité Vida. Um, Comité Vida is... Um, pro-immigrant rights group, completely volunteer-based. Ba- uh, volunteer um, you know, we stand volunteer immigrant defense action, and we're creating a coalition of organizations, and so our organization is based in Santa Rosa, um, in Sonoma County, um, north of San Francisco, and um, we're coalescing with other organizations to demand that Feinstein um, stop, uh, you know, stops obstructing immigration reform. You know, Feinstein Senate rules, we want that to change. Um, you know, as your audience knows, filibuster rules allow very little to nothing from happening in Senate. Um, and we're demanding that an immigration reform happens now. Uh, we're demanding that the filibuster rules that require 60 votes in Senate changes. Um, and um, we want this obstruction of justice from, um, um, we want that to, to end. Um, so we're inviting um, people in Sonoma County, I don't know, Marin or other neighboring uh, counties to join us. Um, we're taking two buses. One is, uh, and, and this event is taking place this coming Sunday, Sunday, November 7th, uh, this Sunday. Um, we're going to be having an action in San Francisco 
Um, the action in San Francisco is gonna is gonna take place from three to five p.m. and we're meeting at uh, Vallejo Street and Lion Street on on the steps of that intersection uh, from three to five p.m. in San Francisco. Um, like I previously said, part of the group, part of our groups and coalition is is. Um, meeting at the Vidas office. Vidas is an immigrant, immigrant rights organization, uh, legal defense, deportation defense in Santa Rosa, um, located in 576 B Street. So the corner of B Street in Santa Rosa and the, and the corner of 10th Street in downtown Santa Rosa. We're le- gathering and we're actually leave- leaving that office this Sunday, 1 p.m., heading over to San Francisco. Another group is also gathering uh, up um, at 1 p.m. as well in, in the Vallejo Vidas office, located at 301 Georgia Street. Um, so in the intersection of Georgia Street and uh, um, at the corner of York Street and Sacramento Street. Um, again, we're advocating for uh, immigration reform, for changes to filibuster rules. We were demanding that I am Feinstein and the Senate stop um, having the sub justice from taking place, right? So um, immigration reform hasn't happened in any way. And, and this is, and you here. would say, if I, sorry to interrupt, you would say that this is a particularly brutal time for those who are asking for this justice. We are seeing torture. We're hearing about special reports about particular uh, singling out Haitians for certain kind of brutality. We're hearing reports from all over the country. We're seeing unbelievable amounts of forced uh, 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 um People being forced back into their uh, into planes and heading back to Haiti. We're seeing brutality at the border. We're seeing killings on the Mexican side of the border, uh, and then we see the communities in this uh, country who do the hardest work, like the the farm workers and the day laborers and the domestic workers, who are facing profound situations in terms of uh, the COVID and the fires. So. This is a particularly treacherous time, wouldn't you say? This is this is a critical time, right? As we know, um, uh, uh, the, the American people as a whole are suffering with with the COVID, uh, with with, um, with with lack of jobs, with lack of good pay, um, and we know that uh, undocumented uh, populations suffer more, right? Obviously, they're not entitled or allowed to access. Um, most of the federal support or any support in, in many cases, and it, it is time for this to ha- for this to change, for this to stop. We need a change. We need an immigration reform. We haven't had anything in 35 plus years. People are suffering. You know, fires are taking place. Flooding is taking place. Uh, COVID is killing people, yeah, and we we need to we need to act. We need. A reform. We need to change the Senate rules so that good policies can take place, and so that people can be can be supported, so that justice can um, start to take place. Okay. Why don't you, uh, if people are interested in finding out more about what's going on, give. Uh, is there a website, uh, a place that people can go to, uh, so they they can follow up and uh, learn more about what you're doing? Very quickly, yes, please. yes. 
Thank you so much. Thank you. Yes, uh, you guys, if you have questions, uh, you can always, uh, we're on Facebook, uh, Comité Vida, Comité Vida, C-O-M-I-T-E, Vida, V for Victor, I-D-A, on Facebook, and we're sponsoring this event um, um, uh, Sunday. Uh, please join in. Um, join us this Sunday, 3 to 5 in San Francisco, and we're gathering also in Santa Rosa and Vallejo. We're leaving those locations at 1. Um, if you have other questions or information, please feel free to contact me as well. Uh, and I can provide my phone number if you're, you're comfortable with that over the Go right ahead. Very quickly. Very quickly. Uh, 707-294-5005. Area code 707-294-5005. Thank you so much. Thank you. Stay safe. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for the time. Uh, appreciate it. Sure. And uh, guess what? That does wrap it up for another edition of Flashpoints, your daily investigative news magazine. Stay tuned. And that wraps it up for another episode of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina. Technical director is Mike Biggs. Special thanks to producer and engineer Rod Akil. For previous episodes, go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening.